Well, friends, if you've been with us this summer, you know that we've been working through the New Testament book of 1 John, and we're taking a very deep dive through this short little book so that we can truly absorb what, this, 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 what the scriptures have to say. You know, many times we take big, big swaths of scripture, but we don't really spend time in it. In this summer, we're taking a long time to work ourselves through a very short portions of the scripture so that it really becomes a part of who we are, that we truly absorb it. And we've even challenged you to try to memorize the first chapter of 1 John, if you can, right? To take the, the whole summer to try to memorize 10 verses of the first chapter of 1 John. You can do this. You really can. It just takes, it takes work. It takes intentionality. It takes repetition. But when you choose to memorize scripture, you will discover how scripture begins to form you without you even realizing that it is. And so as we continue to work through 1 John, we're now going to be taking a look at 1 John. We're in the second chapter. We've taken a whole month, month and a half to work through the first chapter and a half. Uh, we're going to be in 1 John at chapter 2, starting with verse 18. And so if you brought your Bibles with you, please pu pull that out. Go to the 18th verse of chapter 2. If you forgot your Bible, that's okay. Bring it next week. You can grab the, the Bible in your pew holder. If you need a Bible, take that Bible home with you. If you want to, pull this out on your phone. If that's the, the, the best way for you to be able to follow along. Regardless, make sure you are able to be paying attention somehow to what these words are saying as we read these. And so I'm going to be reading from 1 John chapter 2, <coughs> excuse me, starting with verse 18, and then we'll be reading from verse 18 through 27. John writes, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you... See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. For if it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Now, as we read that passage, some of you might have been sitting there listening to it, reading it, and found yourself thinking, what? in the world is this talking about? I am so confused. What in the world is going on? Well, this is an interesting portion of 1 John. It's actually kind of 
coming up right towards the midsection of the letter. And in this section, we're getting a bunch of clues as to what's going on in the community that John is writing to. You know, a few months ago, um, I, I, uh, I was cleaning out one of our old filing cabinets at our house. Any of you have one of those cabinets that you have been avoiding for a long time because you know there's so much in there that you have to address? Well, anyway, I'm f- cleaning out one of these old filing cabinets. And as I'm cleaning it out, I stumbled across this old note that Rachel had written to me over 10 years ago, okay? And I'm not going to tell you what it said. That's between us. But, you know, I take this note to her, and I show it to her, and we kind of laugh together, and we were trying to remember what was going on in, in our lives at the time when she wrote it. There wasn't a date or anything that was on this note. It was just a random note, and we knew that it was from a long time ago. Well, we looked at this note, and you know what we did was we were trying to find clues in what she said that would maybe give us a hint as to what was going on in our lives at the time, right? Is there anything in this letter that she said that would tell us, oh, this is maybe what was going on in our lives at the time, right? Well, what we just read from 1 John is the part of this book that is filled with clues. It's filled with clues that tells us what was going on in the lives of the early Christians that John is writing to. This is the part of the letter that we're able to discover what the situation is, if you will, the the, the problems, if you will, the challenges, if you will, that's occurring in this early Christian community that John is trying to address. Now, we're going to take a look at those clues here for just a quick moment, but what I want you mainly to know is that John is writing this letter because a crisis has occurred in the community. There's a crisis that has happened. And what appears to have happened? What is that crisis? Well, our first clue, it shows up in verse 19. And the clue is that people have left this early church. This is what John says in 19. Go ahead, you can take a look at it. It says, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us, right? What's going on there? For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now, if you're following along as we've been doing all summer long in your Bibles or you're writing or underlining and circling things as we go along, go ahead and and underline the phrase went out and the phrase going, right? Because those are key verbs in this sentence. Underline went out or going. You see, the people whom John is writing to have watched other people who were a part of their church community leave. And now the people that are left there are searching for answers. They're struggling to figure out whether or not they know what is true. And John's writing this letter trying to give assurance to the people who are still remaining, the people who are still there in the church community, helping them understand what is the firm foundation of their faith. What can they truly fall back upon, if you will, in the midst of such a disorienting situation when people outright leave the community over various reasons. And we're going to see what those reasons were here in a minute. Now, at the very beginning of this section, John says this. This is verse 18. Go ahead and take a look at verse 18. John says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Now, many of us are probably thinking, okay, what is going on? What is this about? What is this? What is John saying here? Now, maybe you want to circle or underline the phrase last hour or the phrase antichrist here, because this is obviously, it's important what John's talking about in this phrase, the last hour or the antichrist. But what is it? 
What is he saying when he says this is the last hour? And what is he referring to when John says the Antichrist? Now, before we even dive into this, there's a risk of both overreacting and underreacting to what John is talking about here. C.S. Lewis, he, he once wrote uh, in his book, um, The Screwtape Letters, talking about demons. C.S. Lewis once wrote this. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors. One is to disbelieve in demons' existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Okay, the same could be said about topics like this. When we hear phrases like the last hour, or we hear phrases such as there are many antichrists, we need to take them seriously. We really, really, really do. But we also need to be careful not to overreact to those phrases and find ourselves obsessing over the end of the world. Now, interestingly, this is the only place in the entire Bible where the phrase the last hour is used. It's the only place. Only place where the, in the New Testament, I think it might show up in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it's the only place where the phrase the last hour is used. And, for, and, and, and furthermore, there's only one other book in the New Testament where the word Antichrist shows up. And that's in 2 John. And so what that tells us is that these two phrases, the last hour and Antichrist, are John's specific phrases for biblical themes. For a particular biblical theme, John is using these phrases to try to understand and unpack them. Now, regarding the end, because many times this is where we go. We want to go to, when we hear phrases like the last hour, Antichrist, many times our minds go to trying to understand, oh, is the end of the world right around the corner? What's going on? Well, many of you know this, but if you don't, I'm about to tell you. In the Gospels, Jesus explains to us that there's only one person who really does know the end, and that is God the Father. Only God the Father knows the end. Now, what that means by implication is if any human being makes an assertion that you know when the end of the world is going to happen, then that means you are trying to claim that you have the, the knowledge that only God has. In other words, you're trying to claim that you are God. Now, furthermore, does John say the end of the world is about to occur? No, he doesn't use those phrases. What he uses is he says this is the last hour. So what does that mean? What does it mean when he's talking about that phrase, the last hour? So think of it like this. The last hour could, could sort of be like, it's sort of like saying we're in the final stage of this grand drama. Okay. Have any of you ever gone to see a musical or a play? Any of you ever gone to see a Shakespeare play, right? And you, you, knew, what they were you knew what they were saying in the play, right? Uh, well, classic Shakespeare is broken down into, into typically is, is broken down into five acts, right? It's a five-act play, okay? I mean, other plays as well, but Shakespeare is the one that most people go to of having five different acts, act one, act two, act three, act four, you know, et cetera, et cetera. If the Bible was broken down into five acts, if you will, act one, act two, act three, it might look something like this, okay? So the opening scene of the Bible is act one, and it is creation. The, act, the opening act of creation, God spoke the world into existence, right? This glorious, amazing, incredible, beautiful place in which God is impressing upon his image and his love and his joy and all of what it means to be good is wrapped up in this beautiful world that God has created out of his outflowing love, act one. 
and then act two comes along and it all starts to fall apart. The fall, where Adam and Eve disobey God and sin is unleashed into the world and this force, this power, this existence of evil suddenly begins to distort and to destroy and to disrupt all of the good thing that God has created. And God, in response to trying to thwart this, 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 the powers of sin, begins to work through a particular group of people. And we discover this in Act 3. It starts with the call of a man named Abraham and it grows into a mighty nation known as the nation of Israel. Act 3 takes up almost the rest of the entire Old Testament as God is working through the people of Israel. And then we turn to Act 4, where we are told about a man named Jesus, who came into the world and proclaimed himself as being the Messiah of Israel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are telling us the stories of the life, the death, and the resurrection of this man named Jesus. And we get to Act 4, but then we turn the page to Act 5, and we're told about the, the formation and the existence of what we refer to as the church. Those of you who know your Bibles, you know this starts at what's called Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon the people of God, and they are sent out into the world to be the witnesses of who God is and what God is doing in pursuit of bringing about the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. The church is Act 5. So to say, when John is saying that we're in the last hour, it's sort of like he's saying we're in Act 5, which one could say we're in the last act. If you say you're in a play and you say we're at the last act, that doesn't necessarily mean that the end is, boom, going to happen in five minutes. It just means that we're in the last act of the play. And the reality is that we can't really say any more or any less as to where we are in terms of, of world history without drifting into unhealthy speculation. We know that we are in the last act, the age of the church. And it started the moment that Jesus returned to heaven and gave us the Holy Spirit. And it will end the moment that Jesus returns. And when John says we are in the last hour, he is acknowledging that even 2,000 years ago, he and the early church had entered into Act 5, had entered into the last act. And you and I are still living in that last act, that last hour. We're living in the same hour as John because we are still living in the final act of the play, in the age of the church, in the time in which we are awaiting for Jesus to return. So when John says that this is the last hour, he is saying that we are living in the time when God is working in and through the church before Christ's return. We are living in the time when God is working in and through the church. Now, to help you, if you're, if you're working through your Bibles, maybe this is a place where you circle, you underline the last hour, and you want to write maybe age of the church or the church in the margin, right? To help you see that John's talking about that we've entered into this phase of history where the church is where God is at work, leading us up until one day when Christ does return. Now, what does John mean then when he says this, you know, the last hour has come, we are in the last hour, and then he moves right into this conversation about antichrist. Well, what does this mean? Well, John, he actually defines it for us. Did you catch that in, in, as we read it through? He defines the antichrist in verse 22. In verse 22, he says, 
that an antichrist is somebody who says they are a Christian, but denies that Jesus is the Christ. He says it this way. He says, who is the liar? Whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ, such a person is the antichrist, denying the father and the son. You see, the word Christ, that's not Jesus' last name, okay? That's not what's on his passport. The, name, the, the, the word Christ is a title. Perhaps, you know, if, if sometimes if you need to remind yourself of this, put the word the in between whenever you say, you know, say Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Christ, right? It's a title. And it's a Greek word that, that it refers to the Hebrew title the Messiah. You guys ever heard the phrase Messiah? Maybe you know the song, Jesus Messiah. The word Messiah and the word Christ are the same. They they have the same meaning. They're two different languages, Hebrew and Greek, referring to the same concept that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. So the Christ or the Messiah is the one whom God promised to send to his people Israel, whom he was going to work in and through and ultimately bring about eternal life. The Christ, the Messiah, is the one person, the Son of God, who will one day return to set up God's ultimate kingdom here in this world. So to be anti-Christ, or you could say that to be anti-Messiah, is to deny that Jesus is the Christ or is the Messiah. It's to say that if somebody says, I do not believe that Jesus is the promised Christ, Jesus is not the promised Messiah, by John's definition, that means you are antichrist. Now, Jesus is the full revelation of God the Father. We see this later on in other parts. Paul talks about this in some of his letters. If you want to know what God is like, you look to Jesus. He is the full revelation of God the Father. And so if you deny that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the promised Christ, you are also denying the one who sent Jesus. And who sent Jesus? The Father. And so by denying who Jesus is, you are not only are denying who Jesus' identity is, you are denying the one who sent Jesus who is the Father. So bottom line, what is John trying to get at it here in these phrases? He's trying to say, you can't be a Christian and claim that Jesus is not the Christ. You can't be a Christian and claim that Jesus isn't the Christ. They don't go together. To use John's phrase, if, if that's what you believe, you're, you're a liar. You're, you're, you're living into this nonsensical reality. Claiming that Jesus is not the Messiah is denying who he claims to be and therefore is denying who Jesus is and therefore denying the Father. That makes you anti-Christ. Okay. So here's what's going on. By the way, we've gotten through uh, the first two verses. (laughs) Here's what's going on. In this community, we look at verse 19. Let's take a look at verse 19 again, okay? Here's the clue as to what's going on. And we just learned a little bit more about uh, some other clues. John says they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. What's going on here? There are are people in this early Christian community, this early church, who have denied that Jesus is the Christ. They have come to this conviction or this belief that Jesus isn't really the Messiah. He's not really the promised one of God. And as a result, they left the community. They left. And John is trying to say, look, 
Those who left, they weren't really Christians to begin with. If they did not confess that Jesus is the Christ, and in fact they said the opposite, then they weren't really Christians. They've left the community. They They didn't really belong to us. And now, as we see moving forward, those same people who have left the community... Because they didn't just walk away. Okay? They didn't just say, oh, you know, we're going to go. You go our way, I'll go away. No, no. They left the community, but now they are trying to intentionally deceive the people who have chosen to remain in the community. Take a look at verse 26. I am writing these things to you about why? Those who are trying to lead you astray. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the people who left the community, who denied that Jesus is the Christ. Well, they didn't just leave and say, let's let bygones be bygones. Now they are trying to intentionally deceive the people who have remained in the church community by trying to convert them or persuade them or whatever the case might be to come to their side, if you will. The the, the NIV, it says it uses lead you astray. Underline that phrase. It's a key part of this section. Lead you astray. Underline that phrase. Some translations, I believe the NRSV, the ESV, they use the word deceive, right? There's intentional deception occurring right now in this early community. The King James Version goes so far as to translate that word seduce. People are trying to seduce these are this early church community. John is describing people who have denied the faith, left the faith, and are now trying to deceive those who still remain in the faith. They are trying to lead the early church, this early Christian community, away from these fundamental truths of Christianity. And so ultimately what John is doing in this letter, and he's really getting to the heart of it in this section, he is trying to assure these believers that they can combat deception. I don't know about you, but I don't like being deceived. Do any of you enjoy being deceived? Didn't think so. There aren't many things that can fill you with anger more than discovering that you've been deceived by somebody, right? I, I remember a time in my life when I, 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 I fell for a scam, and I, I'll never forget the moment I found out what was going on. I was angry. I was frustrated. I was confused. I was upset, and that just scratched the surface, right? Because I had been deceived. You see, the whole point of deception is that deception is built upon lies. You deceive by not revealing truth. You cover the truth. You hide the truth, whatever it is. Deception depends on keeping the truth hidden or concealed in one way or another. You know, over the last few years in our culture, we've seen a lot of high-profile men, especially from movie stars to evangelical pastors, suddenly have the truth of their actions revealed. And anyone who looked up to those people, how did they feel? They felt deceived. So what I'm getting at is this. Deception is exposed when the truth is revealed. In order to combat deception, in order to address deception, in order to really face deception, you have to know the truth. You have to be able to reveal the truth in order to expose what is going on underneath it. So John is speaking to this early church community, trying to help them understand how they can combat, how they can react to, how they can, you know, remember, they, they would have known who these people were. These weren't just 
these weren't just random people that decided to leave and they didn't know their name. They would have known these people by name, face by face, and they're trying to wrestle with how do we, how do we interact now with these people that are denying our, our fundamental convictions, our fundamental truths of the faith? How do we handle not being deceived when we need, and, and John's answer is, you have to know the truth. So what's John's ultimate solution? How do we go about doing that? Well, he jumps around a good bit in order to, to get at his solution here, okay? He jumps around a good bit. He starts off by talking about his solution in verse 20, and then he kind of comes back to it in verse 24, and then he kind of comes back to it again in verse 27. So we're going to read those three verses, okay, in order. We're just going to read 20, then 24, then 27. So if you're following along, be ready. We're going to kind of jump 20 to 24 to 27. But as I'm reading these verses, I want you to be paying attention to words that repeat themselves, Where do you see words or phrases that are repeated? Remember, if you were here last week, repetition was the ancient way of showing emphasis. And so whenever you see words or phrases that are repeated, that's John's way of really emphasizing something. So let's go ahead. Let's start with verse 20. And we're just going to work right through this. Verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. Verse 24. As for you, see that what you heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. Verse 27. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Maybe some of you picked up on the places where you saw words repeating themselves, or even whole phrases that repeat. John's solution is to remind his readers to guarantee, to make sure, to do everything possible in their power that two things remain in you. He identifies two separate things and challenges this early church and us still today to do everything in your power to make sure that these two things remain in you. Those two things are, first, verse 24, What you heard from the beginning. That's the first thing. John says, what you heard from the beginning, make sure it remains in you. We're going to come back to that in a second. The second thing that John says to remain in you no matter what is this. Verse 27. The anointing you received. The anointing you received. Do you see both of those phrases? What you heard from the beginning, in verse 24, remain in you. The anointing that you received, remain in you. So what's going on? Let's take a look at both of those topics. What you heard from the beginning. That phrase in verse 24, what you heard from the beginning, is the original teaching of the gospel message. If you need to, underline that phrase and write the word gospel in the margin, right? This is the gospel message. It's the original message about Jesus. It's it's the story of who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and why Jesus did it. 
It's, the, it's what the earliest followers of Jesus are constantly reminding their churches of the basic message of Jesus. If you, if you take some time and you read through Paul's letters, for example, you're going to come through time after time where Paul says, remember what I passed on to you as of utmost importance, that Jesus, and he goes on to explain the message of the gospel. This constant, constant, constant reminding of who Jesus is and what Jesus did and why Jesus did it. So much so that, that, that eventually the Christians sat down and they said, we got to make sure this is written down so that people don't forget about it. And they did, and they wrote it down, and it's what we now have as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Don't forget the message of the gospel, the story of the gospel, the story of who Jesus is. You see, the foundation of the gospel is the identity of Jesus. If we don't know who Jesus is, the rest of the gospel story is a bit meaningless. Think of it this way. If Jesus is not the Christ, who cares what he did? If Jesus is not the Messiah, then he's just another guy in history who did some things. You know, honestly, John could probably remember Jesus drilling him and Peter and the other disciples about this very topic. We're told in Matthew's gospel that at one point, Jesus looks at all of the disciples. He looks at them right in the eye, and he says this. In Matthew 16, starting with verse 15 and 16, Jesus says to the disciples, What about you? Who do you say that I am? Can you imagine Jesus asking you that question? He makes it personal. What about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answers back. What does he say? He says, You are the... Messiah. You could also put in the word Christ. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The, the message of the gospel must depend on who Jesus is. You have to decide who is this Jesus? Who is this man? The shocking and scandalous message of the gospel is not that somebody died on a cross. Lots of people died on, the cross, on a cross in the ancient world. Thousands of people were, were executed on crosses in the ancient world. Tons of people died on crosses, and they didn't deserve to die on a cross. So what makes the gospel so shocking and scandalous? It's not that somebody died on a cross. What makes it so shocking is who died on the cross. The person who died on that cross was the Messiah, the son of the living God. It wasn't just some random Jewish man named Jesus of Nazareth. It was the Messiah, the son of the living God, who made himself known in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who died on that cross 2,000 years ago. And three days later, the resurrection of Jesus was this triumphant declaration that this man was indeed the Christ. That death thought you could kill him, but you couldn't because he has risen from the dead. He is indeed who he said he is. My Lord and my God, says Thomas at the end of John. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is what John is saying. That is what you've heard from the beginning. The story of who Jesus is, the identity of who Jesus is. If somebody is teaching something contrary to this, says John, don't listen to them. If they are pulling you or deceiving you or leading you astray from anything other than this original message that we have passed on to you from the beginning, don't listen to them. What you have heard from the beginning is the gospel message of Jesus. But next, John says there's something else. 
that you also have to ensure remains in you. He says, the anointing you have received must also remain in you. The anointing you received is the moment you received the Holy Spirit. Go ahead and if you need to, you know, underline that phrase or circle wherever you see the word anointing and write the word Holy Spirit in the margin. The, the word anointing, you, if you take a look, John uses that word four times. He says it one in verse 20, and then he says it three times in verse 27. This anointing, this anointing, this anointing. He's talking about the reception of God's Holy Spirit. The disciples, they experienced this personally. John was there. At the end of his gospel, in chapter 20, Jesus says, Peace be with you. Remember, some of you remember this. Right after Easter, we talked about this. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And then in verse 21 and 22, Jesus says, Receive the Holy Spirit. It's the reception of God's Holy Spirit. And, when, and the church was birthed when they too received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The launching of the last hour occurred at, at the reception of the Holy Spirit. You see, John is trying to tell this community, look, when you received the Holy Spirit, you received the Spirit of truth. And the community that is trying to deceive you, they will be opposing the Holy Spirit. Therefore, allow the Holy Spirit to guide you into all truth. Jesus says this in, his, in the Gospel of John. John 16, 13. Jesus says this, he says, when the spirit of what? Truth comes, he will guide you into what? The truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. Do you guys see the connection? The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth. And this is a group of believers who have just watched people walk away from their community, and they're struggling to know what is the truth. They're, feel, they're feeling deceived by these people that have left the community. And John is trying to tell them, but you have the Holy Spirit. But you have the Holy Spirit. And because you have the Holy Spirit, you can know the truth. You can know that Jesus is indeed the Holy One of God, the promised Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so these two things that John is telling us to remain in us, what you have heard from the beginning is the gospel and the anointing you have received is the reception of the Holy Spirit into your life. But then he says, make sure that they remain in you. What in the world does that mean? How in the world do you allow these things to remain in you? Notice, he uses that phrase, remain, four times. Circle each one of them if you need to. To remain in you, some Bibles translate this as abide. To abide in this. It's a relational word. It means to have this mutual indwelling Jesus says this in John's gospel. He says, remain in me or abide in me as I remain in you. And so for, for John's earliest, for this early church community, the question is, how in the midst of conflict, how in the midst of confusion, how in the midst of uncertainty, how do we remain in Christ? To remain or to abide in Christ, it means simply this, to actively seek and obey Jesus in every aspect of your life at every single point of your life. It means spending time with Jesus daily. It means getting the scriptures in your heart. It means trusting God with your resources. It means talking to him on a regular basis. It means confessing your sins honestly. It means guarding your minds from impurity. It means serving and loving the people around you. It means to stay connected to Jesus all the time. 
It means to have such an intimate relationship and fellowship with God that your life is a natural outflow of obedience at all times. John is telling this early church, and he's still telling us today, that if you are doing all of that, if you are abiding in Christ, if you are remaining in Christ, then you don't have to worry about whether or not you have the truth. You don't have to worry about whether or not false teachers are going to deceive because guess what? False teachers will arise. That's part of what it means to be living in the last hour. But you don't have to worry about them because if you remain and abide in Christ, if you remain and abide in the power of the Holy Spirit that you receive at your baptism, then you will know the truth. Because remember, the truth is not some set of propositional statements. The truth is a person. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. The truth is a person. The truth is Jesus, and Jesus is the Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may we know you, for you are our truth. May we know and, and believe that there is nothing that we can do that will separate us from your love when we remain and we abide in you. Fill our hearts with your, with your Holy Spirit as we cling to that message that we've heard from the beginning. In Jesus' name, amen.